The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. David Kaufman, the Chief of Critical Care at Bridgeport Hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with Yale University. His interests include sepsis, acute lung injury, and septic shock. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman. Thanks, Yasha. Today we are going to be discussing the article, Multicenter Implementation of a Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock Treatment Bundle, which is published in the July 1, 2013 edition of the Blue Journal. We are joined by the first author of this paper, Dr. Russ Miller. He is the director of the Respiratory Intensive Care Unit at Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. He holds joint appointments at Intermountain Medical Center and the University of Utah as an assistant professor of medicine. Dr. Miller has published previously on acute respiratory distress syndrome, delirium, sedation, and physical activity in the ICU. We are also joined by Dr. Ricard Ferrer, who is director of the intensive care department of Mutua Terraza Hospital in Barcelona, Spain. He attended medical school and performed his residency in Barcelona. Dr. Ferrer is the member of the steering committee of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and since 2010 is deputy of the Systemic Inflammation and Sepsis Section of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. He was the lead author of the article, Improvement in Process of Care and Outcome After a Multicenter Severe Sepsis Educational Program in Spain, which was published in JAMA in 2008. So, Dr. Miller, your results speak for themselves. You and your colleagues in the Intermountain Health System devised a simplified version of the sepsis bundle that was advocated by the surviving sepsis campaign. In the first three hours, uh, providers had to check the serum lactate, get blood cultures, and start antibiotics. And then within the first six hours, if it was indicated, providers had to give 20 to 40 milliliters per kilogram of isotonic crystalloid give vasopressors or inotropes or packed red cells if it was indicated to achieve a central venous pressure of at least 8 centimeters of water or more and a central venous oxygen saturation of 70% or more. And over time, the hospitals in your system showed an impressive increase in the compliance with this bundle, and this increased compliance was strongly associated with a dramatic decrease in mortality and morbidity and also with less progression to more severe stages of sepsis over time. So I want to ask you, Dr. Miller, what made you and your colleagues decide to break up the advocated sepsis bundle into a three-hour resuscitation phase and a six-hour resuscitation phase and then a third maintenance category? That's correct, Dr. Kaufman. We made the decision to separate bundle elements into three- and six-hour phases because of how quickly patients are admitted into our ICUs from the emergency departments. We have a short average emergency department ICU admission time that lengthened only slightly from 3.2 to 3.7 hours during the study period. The three-hour elements were handled exclusively in the emergency department, while the six-hour elements were the shared responsibility of our ICUs and emergency departments. Compliance with the maintenance elements mostly fell to the ICU, and low-stretch ventilation was common practice in our facilities already. Dr. Ferrer, in your work in Spain, which you published in JAMA in 2008, 
you and your colleagues used the 2004 version of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines nearly verbatim. And I just wonder what made you and your colleagues decide not to modify them to fit the institutional needs of the hospitals in your network? In these years, we decided to be part of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. So Dr. Michelevi invited us to be part of the campaign. So we accepted. But the only condition was that uh, we would like to analyze the results of Spain alone. So we were, in fact, part of the campaign. Our patients were published also with the results of the global uh, surveillance service campaign data. So uh, we are inside of the campaign. So we are part of the campaign. Uh, as I told you, that the, the condition was that we were able to analyze the results of Spain alone, and we want also to give to this the form of a study, of an interventional study, not just a registry as was done with the insurance service campaign. So we can measure pre and post intervention the results in our center. But we were using the same database that the insurance service campaign was using for the main American and European study or registry. So we add some additional data that are severity using Apache 2 score, age of patients, only only two over three extra variables we were we, we thought in this moment that were important so for your study. But we, we were part of the campaign. We were using the same database of the campaign. That's why we follow the same the same recommendation and the same quality indicators. So Dr. Miller, you made a decision to tailor the guidelines to the hospitals in your system. It would be really fascinating to know how you and your colleagues were able to educate all of the providers and the hospitals involved in your study. And how did you perform quality control to ensure that the individual hospitals and individual providers were so compliant with the guidelines over time? Tell us a little bit about how you educated people and how you maintained a high level of performance. Intermountain Healthcare incorporates a unique care model, I think, whereby the clinical services are divided among various clinical programs and organized around clinical work processes. Each clinical program is charged with developing corporate board goals annually. A board goal aligns the entire system vertically so that every administrator, director, manager, frontline clinician, et cetera, are all on the same page. Ultimately, in 2010, this board goal included high compliance with all 11 elements of the Intermountain Healthcare Sepsis Bundle. Between 2004 and 2010, by monthly and annual meetings of the Intensive Medicine Clinical Program, which included ER physicians, ER nursing leadership, ICU directors, ICU nursing leadership, and other ancillary leaders, continued to stress the importance of identifying patients and also conducting the bundle. Therefore, the clinical program served as the node of communication and measurement for sepsis bundle compliance. We also shared tools developed locally in one ICU, for example, to improve reliability among facilities. To ensure quality control, as you say, we developed infrastructure through the clinical program to graphically present compliance data by hospital system, by hospital, and by ICU so that individual clinicians and managers could evaluate local performance. We specifically developed run charts updated monthly for presentation purposes to evaluate bundle compliance and place these in a viewable location on our system website. In the end, I believe the success of our implementation comes down to our people. Dr. Terry Clemmer's leadership at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and over the last 35 plus years at Intermountain Healthcare 
has taught us much about successful continuous quality improvement. This was not just a research project. It was a way of standardized practice that we were implementing. So, Dr. Miller, let me follow up. Would it be safe to say that a big part of the success of this program and a lot of other programs for which intermittent health is justifiably famous is due to the long history and culture of dedication to quality improvement, but also to some degree breaking down the traditional departmental and other kinds of geographic barriers that separate different disciplines in your delivery system? I wouldn't want to pretend that we don't have silos within our institution. However, I believe that what you say is true. We do, through the structure of our system, create means for people to reliably evaluate performance. Honestly, as much as anything, as I said, it comes down to the people and the type of people who want to work at Intermountain Healthcare, not just being here, but who come to Intermountain Healthcare with the intent in mind to conduct these types of investigations. Dr. Ferrer, can you tell us a little bit about how your approach in a more diverse set of hospitals spread across the country of Spain differed from the approach that Dr. Miller and his colleagues took? Well, the main difference is that we just tested an intervention. So the study was done during a short period of time, and the study by Dr. Miller was done during a long period of time. Probably the effect of the Dr. Miller study is sustained. We demonstrated in our study that after our intervention, several months later, part of the effect of our intervention disappeared. So I would like to stress that the study of Dr. Miller is not only a study, it's something that changed culture and the way of working in their hospitals. So they have a sustained and continuous improvement in the quality of care and in the mortality of the patient. So it's something different. We test an intervention. It was very important, but it's a short period of time and uh, not sustained. The other difference is that in the Dr. Miller study, they only analyzed patients coming from the ED, and we were including in our study patients coming from the wards and also patients who developed sepsis in the ICU. This could explain some of the difference in mortality because patients in the ED have lower mortality than patients who develop sepsis in the wards and also, of course, in the, in the ICU. We were able uh, to analyze uh, very recently, I mean, we are going to present this data in the next European Congress of Intensive Care Medicine, uh, what happened five years later in the ICUs that participated in the first study. So now we have compared the mortality and the quality of care of 42 ICUs in Spain that did the intervention during the JAMA study and a second intervention we did uh, two years ago. This second intervention was only focused on early antibiotic that in our analysis of where the elements of the bundles with more potent effect, affecting mortality reduction was antibiotics. So we decided two years ago to do an intervention on early antibiotics. And in, in these 42 ICUs, the mortality has been reduced for more than 10 points, absolute mortality. So it goes down from 42 to 30 to 31%. And the quality of care 
improve with uh, higher compliance, especially with the hemodynamic resuscitation uh, elements. So I would say that now in Spain there is a secular improve, maybe because of the trans service campaign, improving the quality of care and also improving the mortality that uh, it's sustained, but it's not the result of an intervention in each hospital, I think is the result of a continuous improvement uh, related to the uh, to the guidelines and the effect of the campaign. So would it be fair to say, Dr. Ferrer, that your intervention in 2004-2005 consisted pretty much of an intensive education effort that had a strong but relatively temporary effect that waned over time in comparison with Dr. Miller's group's effort, which was much more sustained education and then continuous feedback loop of how are you doing on meeting a certain set of metrics. Yeah, yeah this is the main difference. It's difficult when you, when you do a sustained effort to put it in a format of a study but it's clear that the Dr. Miller succeeds with us. So it's much more easy just to test an intervention and do a pre-post analysis or so could be done a randomized, a cluster randomized control trials with some units that can intervene and other cannot intervene and then to assess the effect of the intervention. So this type of sustained quality improvement strategies are uh, much more difficult to be put in the form of a, of a study, but they succeed, and uh, I would like to congratulate Dr. Miller for this. So, Dr. Miller, I, I think that uh, the next question I'm going to ask is a little bit addressed by one of the comments that Dr. Ferrer made just a couple minutes ago, which is that if I read your results correctly, it sounds like compliance with the first three elements of your resuscitation bundle, the one that took place principally in the emergency department, and these were, just to remind ourselves, checking the serum lactate, obtaining blood cultures, and then giving antibiotics within the first three hours of care, this set of interventions was associated with a lower rate of needing the later elements of the sepsis bundle, you know, the parts that we genuinely associate with resuscitation, fluids, blood products, pressors, and so forth. I find it curious that only one of these first three interventions is truly a therapeutic intervention, and that is giving antibiotics. And I wonder whether you think that the early administration of antibiotics alone accounts for the dramatic decrease in sepsis progression. Frankly, I do not totally buy the power of antibiotics specifically to drive the decrease in progression of severity of sepsis. One might argue that the most difficult intervention in sepsis amidst the mass of patients presenting to the emergency department with a fall, dizziness, abdominal pain, or any nonspecific complaint is identifying the patient as potentially septic in the first place. I favor the more rapid identification of patients and willingness of our emergency department physicians to incorporate a standardized approach to their management as to why less progression to more severe sepsis and more severe disease was observed. Specifically, driving compliance with lactate measurement to high reliability was a key to sepsis recognition. If you're not thinking sepsis and see a lactate of three or four, you're more likely to consider sepsis. Standardization of care yielding improved outcomes is not new, nor is improving sepsis outcomes by following guideline recommendations, as Dr. Ferrer and colleagues previously noted. 
achieving high compliance with sepsis recommendations, although perhaps not as high as we had hoped for. By standardizing early and consistent screening, that is new. So, Dr. Miller, I want to follow up a little bit on that. First, I want to ask, do you have any information on how many patients were identified with an atypical presentation, such as the ones that you alluded to, a fall, dizziness, or some very nonspecific symptomology? And also, do you have any information on how many patients started getting the resuscitative elements, the IV fluid, the blood products, the pressors, earlier than the three-hour time point that you had sort of set apart for the ED component of your protocol, and how much of that was driven by early identification by uh, using an elevated lactate? I think to the question about atypical presentations, unfortunately, no. We do not have a lot of hard data regarding those patients. We ultimately know whether they had severe sepsis and or septic shock, of course, but we do not and did not try to evaluate for their initial complaint on presentation to the emergency department, unfortunately. As to the question of lactate as a hinge and whether that resulted in earlier resuscitation time-wise, I think that is absolutely true. I think we observed over time an increase in fluid resuscitation in the emergency department, an increase in the use of vasopressors in the emergency department when appropriate compared to waiting for that to occur in the ICU environment. So, Dr. Ferrer, it sounds like Dr. Miller and his team used lactate as their hinge or their trigger for more intensive interventions in the folks with sepsis or related presentations. I know that in Europe, clinicians have been using procalcitonin a lot more than clinicians in the United States have. And I wonder if you have any insight about whether procalcitonin levels are helping providers early in the course of infection identify patients with sepsis, severe sepsis, or septic shock? Well, uh, we are using a lot of procalcitonin. Procalcitonin is working quite well as a biomarker of sepsis, but for me what is uh, more important is what uh, algorithm you have with the procalcitonin. If you are using procalcitonin as a tool for increasing intensity of treatment or intensity of a diagnosis tool, this is not working very well. It can lead you to over-treatment or overusing of diagnostic tools. The algorithms that have demonstrated benefit with the use of procalcitonin are based in decreasing antibiotics or stopping antibiotics or in this way. So I think that Procalcitonin is useful, but the algorithm behind the procalcitonin um, is the key issue and could be dangerous to take decisions based only on procalcitonin for increasing antibiotic use or asking for additional diagnostic tools. I think 
patient that the progesterone goes went down is a patient that we can consider for top antibiotics or taking decisions in this in this way, but not not for more for the for the escalation. This is the way we are using now. Procalcitonin. So we are not using just a single determination in DD. We are using serial determination in the patient in the hospital and more in the sense of de-escalation than more in, not in the sense of escalation. With the comments of Dr. Miller about lactate, lactate is a useful tool for guiding resuscitation, but also a very useful tool for screening patients in the in the ED. So, Dr. Ferrer. I think you addressed some of these points, but I, I would like to see if you can address them together so that people listening to this podcast can try to understand how they might be able to replicate some of the findings that both your team and Dr. Miller's team have shared with us through publications. So in Spain, you and your colleagues utilized the sepsis bundle over approximately the same time period as uh, Dr. Miller and his colleagues. And you showed a decrease in mortality of about 4 to 5% from the pre-intervention period in 2005 to the post-intervention period. And Dr. Miller and his colleagues showed a similar decrease in mortality over about the same time frame. But Dr. Miller showed continued decreases in morbidity and mortality over time. And I wonder if you have been able in your hospitals to show that your bundle implementation has continued to result in the same kinds of decreases in morbidity and mortality sustained for a seven or eight year period the way that Dr. Miller has. It's clear that this kind of intervention should be sustained because the effect disappear on time, especially in the ED department where, at least in Spain and Europe, the turnover of physicians in the department is very high. So this effort should be sustained. It should be not only educational. If our educational should be educational and very interactive, now we are incorporating gaming and simulation as a techniques uh, with high level of interaction for education, I think this is very important. The other important point is that we should incorporate also audit and feedback. So we should measure this quality indicator each month and give feedback to the physicians in DD about which is the level of compliance each month and looking if this is improving or worsening. And also there are some tools like, for example, uh, health for prescription, for the antibiotics, this should be easily accessed for physicians that can also help. So should be sustained, should be multifaceted, should incorporate education, continuous education, but with interaction and audit and feedback and some kind of tools for helping for prescription will be useful and obviously also reminders. So this is the way we are addressing this now. And this effort is done hospital by hospital but the, the hospital that ha has been able to, to develop this kind of approach now are having uh, a lower level of mortality with their patients. So, Dr. Ferrer, I, I want to follow up on something that you mentioned. You mentioned that you're using simulation and gaming to try to give providers more incentive to comply with the bundle and so forth. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how you're using simulation and gaming. So we have designed several uh, clinical scenarios. It's like a virtual patient. So the residents or the fellows can go to these clinical scenarios, and there is interactive questions there. 
and they can learn the guidelines using these uh, virtual patients. Virtual patient. At the end of the game, they have two information. One information is the, the time needed to, to solve the game and also the number of questions they have done correctly. And also, uh, we have, uh, with this kind of game, we have a database of how many people is playing each month and which are the resources they are taking. So for us, this is now our, uh, I would say that this is the, 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 key, the key element in our strategy now. Dr. Miller, it sounds like um, it's a very different set of tools that uh, Dr. Ferrer and his colleagues are using to try to incentivize providers to do the right thing. And I wonder if you, from your perspective at Intermountain Health, which we will recognize is a great example of how healthcare in the United States can be delivered but may not have generalizable lessons for every system in the United States due to a lot of unique aspects of the situation that you have there. What elements would you suggest are the most generalizable? What do you think that our listeners can have as a take-home message so that they could go back to their institutions and say, this is how we can do this and this is how we can make a real impact in improving the care of folks with severe infections? I think Intermountain Healthcare, as you graciously have pointed out, has some unique features. However, there's no question in my mind that many of the things that we are doing are generalizable. One of the strengths of our corporation is a strength other places, and that is the depth and breadth of the information systems. Using our information systems in a way to inform appropriate practice and inform best practice is not something that can be relegated to a select few hospitals going forward. I think the new momentum very much favors incorporating specific tools directly to the provider level to evaluate their own practice. Most importantly, perhaps, as I've said previously, people make the difference. And everybody incorporates people trying to make a difference at the bedside. While the motivations for getting people to perform and standardize practice may differ from place to place, I think people remain a unifying focus at the bedside for improving the way in which our patients receive best practices. Today we spoke with Russ Miller, the lead author of the paper, Multicenter Implementation of a Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock Treatment Bundle, which is published in the July 1, 2013 edition of the Blue Journal. Joining us was Dr. Ferrer, who led a similar effort in Spain and published his results in 2008 in JAMA. We discussed the sustained success Dr. Miller's group has demonstrated at Intermountain Health in Utah and some of the ingredients that were important to that sustained success. Thank you for listening to the Blue Journal Podcasts.